welcome. As we continue on in our gathering, uh, man, we need to hear that prayer again and again over our souls. Uh, we can't do any of this without uh, the Lord helping us see and hear and understand and believe. Hey, as we continue on in our gathering, um, it's Easter tide. That means that we are in the season of Easter. Easter wasn't just one Sunday on the Christian calendar. Instead, it is the first Sunday of eight weeks where we are uh, celebrating the Easter season, the resurrection. We're, we're going back in and we're trying to understand what it meant and what it means that Jesus is making all things new as he did when he rose from the grave and now is raising us from the grave, that he's making us new. That's still true as we continue on in Easter. As we do continue, we are starting a new series this morning called Take Courage. You know, it takes courage to do something new, and we're all doing something new. We're now six weeks in to something new, and who knows when uh, the orders will lift and change, and we'll be embarking on something new again. As we do that, my prayer for us is that we would truly take heart, take courage. We would be encouraged by the Spirit who is here to encourage us. Each week, as we go through the Eastertide season leading up to Ascension Sunday at the end of May and then Pentecost Sunday, uh, we're going to look at what it means to, to be courageous, to take courage in new ways. So this week, we're going to talk about our spiritual health. How do we take courage now in this season of waiting? Uh, and then next week, we're going to have something special. We're going to have a little bit of like a roundtable where we talk about um, our emotional health with some trusted counselors in our church. You're going to want to be able to come back for that next week. But before we get there, we want to start that off with what it looks like to be spiritually renewed during our time. I don't know about you, but I've heard this throughout the week that, man, like Easter was different. It was weird. Um, and, and there was a little bit of a letdown for Easter because you couldn't go and celebrate with people. You couldn't hug people. You know, your pastels didn't, didn't reflect on other people's pastels. And so it wasn't as bright in your world. And um, I would say this, like, man, you're not alone. You are not alone in the great Easter letdown where you know Jesus has been risen from the grave. You, you, you sensed it at some point in your life. You told a story about it on Facebook or Instagram or wherever you told your story about how Jesus changed your life and how God has made you alive. And yet there was a little bit of a letdown, right? Like there was this little bit of just this little pain that you thought, man, like, yes, Jesus has risen, but where is he? What is he doing? What's going on? And maybe you've, you've, you're like me, you've crossed from this disorientation phase in five or six weeks of this whole thing, and now you're just running out of patience. Like, how long, oh Lord, will you ignore the prayer of your saints to lift this uh, virus, this, this plague, whatever it may be, this pestilence? Um, how long, oh Lord? I would ask us and I would implore us to realize we are not the first to have an Easter like we've had, to celebrate the risen king, and yet at the same time be a little bit let down. No, in fact, the first disciples felt the same way. Let me remind you of their last 10 days. That they've, If we've experienced the last 10 days, they also had experienced the last 10 days or so. Let me remind you of those. You, you see, they had disorientation. They saw their, their Messiah get arrested and beaten. They deserted him. They betrayed him. They denied him. 
They saw the gruesome death that he died. They saw him get put into a grave, or at least some of them did. And now all of a sudden, women have testified just a week ago that he has been risen, and we got to go to Galilee, and we saw him in Galilee, if you're a disciple. And now in Galilee, what does he say? Go to Jerusalem and wait. You mean the risen Savior can't do better than just wait it out? Well, of course he can, but there's something greater for us in this season of waiting. You see, this season of waiting for the disciples lasted 50 days. That's seven weeks. Friends, we'll pass the seven-week threshold of waiting next week. And actually, depending on how you count this thing, we've only been under quarantine uh, for just a little bit over a month. So it could even be more than that. So I just, I just want us to re-enter the story of the, the gospel story. When those first disciples were waiting and longing, you see the resurrection had happened, and yet Jesus wasn't done preparing them for something better. See, that would be a little bit more frustrating for me, not just that Jesus, we knew that Jesus could rise from the dead or that he did rise from the dead. Those disciples saw him, touched him, ate with him, fished with him, and yet he's still calling them to wait. Super frustrating, I think, for me. Like this week, my wife told me, you know, hey, maybe you should just make a list of the things that are frustrating you and just kind of, you know, just process through those alone by yourself because it's just kind of coming out this week. You see, we all need to be reminded that though Jesus has been risen, there is a renewal process that takes time. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's you this week that you know that Jesus is powerful. You know that he has risen from the dead, but you're just not feeling it. You're just not feeling it this week or this season. But let me just invite you to take courage, to take heart, because it takes courage to wait well, to join God and wanting something more for us than getting what we want when we want it. Perhaps God is helping us see that we're not as faithful as we pretend to be on the outside. And perhaps we need to understand that God is worth the wait. He is worth the wait. And so the question comes out of this passage. I'm just going to focus on one verse. It's that final verse that we talked about that they read, the Moltons read, Luke 24, 49. How do we wait well, giving God glory as we wait for something to happen, just as Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to come in power and he would call them to wait and stay in Jerusalem. So now he calls us to wait. How do we do that well? First, we take God at his word. We take God at his word. Look with me in Luke 24, 49, one more time. This is what the scripture says. Jesus saying now to the disciples, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You see, we can take God at his word because Jesus, look at this, the character of God, he is sending a promise from his Father. It is a promise from our dad. And this has been told to us by our big brother, Jesus, who just died for us, resurrected to give us power. You see, God is a good father, the Bible says, and we are invited to trust him as such. I want to juxtapose 
his goodness with what Jesus calls us. Um, not just our badness, but follow with me into the scriptures in Matthew verse, uh, chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, and it says this, Or which one of you of his son asks him for bread? This is one of my favorites. Will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, my favorite part, you then who are evil, uh, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What God is highlighting for us is that we who are flawed, and he says evil, evil, bad to our core, if we know how to give the things that our kids need to them, how much more a good father will give to us what we need. And so though it may feel like we're asking for a fish and God has given us a serpent, we can depend on the character of God, the goodness of God, that when he says he's going to do something, he's going to do something. It's set in stone. You see, that's what a promise is. And I looked up the definition of this Greek word for promise that I want to share with you out of this Greek uh, uh, dictionary that we commonly use. And it says this, like word for word. I don't normally quote the Greek. Certainly, it's a risk to do that to a lens and not to eyeballs. But follow with me here because I think we're going to get something out of this. A promise is a declaration to, to do something with the implication of obligation to carry out what is stated. Now, let's just leave that up for a second. It is a declaration to do something with the implication of obligation that you're going to do something. So you say something, and you're obligated to do it. And many of us, when we parent, we go, well, look, I'll do this if you do that. Hey, you can play on Minecraft for 20 minutes, okay? That's fine, but you, you got to go clean your room. And, and that, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what God is talking about. That's really more of a contract, right? This is just God declaring a promise. And when we think about promises throughout the scriptures, I think about covenants, not contracts. You see, you are in a covenant if you are married. You have declared and pledged your love to your spouse, and it doesn't matter the circumstances. It doesn't matter how evil they are or how bad they are. You have said, man, through thick and thin, sickness and health, rich and poor, Till death do us part. And the reason why that language is in our marriage covenant, because it's a representation of how God has loved us. Not dependent upon our faithfulness, but dependent, check this, dependent on his character. See, that's why I think he's so, um, so passionate about us when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything else comes from the evil one. And so our words should reflect the word and the character of God, that it is steadfast, unable to be thwarted. Why? And here's the danger, friends. Not because of our faithfulness. Not because of our goodness. Not because of uh, how much we give or if we're dialed in on Facebook or YouTube on a regular basis. Not any of that. No, instead, when God makes a promise, He is obligated. Not because we do things, but because of His character. It's because of his character that he will fulfill the promise, not because of ours. So how do we know that God is going to do what he says he is going 
to do? How do we know? How can we trust him? And I would say just by looking at his track record, look with me at the rest of that passage that the Moltons read in verses 44 through 48. Look what it says. Jesus says to them now, the risen king, and he's saying something for us that we may not understand or may not, may not feel uh, like the weight of what he's saying. But look in Luke 24, verse 44. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Look at what he's doing. He's about to commission them. He's about to send them into the city to wait and then be powered by the Holy Spirit and then go do crazy things. And they're got to be thinking like you are. Can this really happen? And he goes, look, you're going to know that this can happen by looking back at the promises of God being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Keep reading. Then he opened their minds in verse 45 to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Oh, we got to go back to Jerusalem. It's going to start from there. And then verse 48, you, you are witnesses of these things. What is Jesus doing? Right before he says, go and wait for this promise in the city. Why is he going back to, the, it's written about all this stuff, about who God is, about what he came to do, that he would die, that he would rise. Why is he doing all that? Because he's putting down for them a track record. He's reminding them of his faithfulness. He's reminding them that what he says he will do. He's looking back at the past, the very recent past in their life, 10 days or so, where they have seen his words come true in the worst possible way. And yet for Jesus, he's drawing upon that to say, no, yes, it's terrible circumstance. But more than that, it points to a good father with character to be trusted. So I have a question. How has God proven faithful to you? How has he proven faithful to you in the past? What are some stories? What are some thoughts? What are some journal entries that you can look back on as those things that you can go, man, I know that God has done these things. I know that he's been faithful. We look back on the faithfulness of God so that we can look into the future and see that he will make good on his word. So therefore, we've got to take God at his word. We've got to trust him at his word. But one big question remains. Is it worth it? Isn't that kind of at the heart of all this? Like, is this going to be worth it? Is staying at home going to be worth the economy tanking? Is, is going out going to be worth risking the health of the public? Is it worth it? And is God worth waiting in the unknown in that tension? Is God worth our wait? Man, friends, God is worth the wait. A hundred times over, God is worth the wait. If we go back to Luke 24, 49, he says, Stay in the city. We are called to wait for God. We are, obviously, through our circumstances right now, we're all on hold. I remember when this first went down, I looked at Melissa and I go, Our lives are on hold for two weeks. <laughs> Wishful thinking that was. I just thought we would just go back to softball and baseball and anything else. No, no, no. We now are, are, are in the deepest weight probably of our lives. And I think the thing that will help us understand what God is doing is a couple of 
um, helpful reminders about not just the character of God, but the purposes of God. There's a pastor and author named Peter Scazzaro. He wrote several things about the emotionally healthy uh, church, the emotionally healthy Christian. If you um, have some time to do some reading, I highly recommend uh, Peter Scazzaro's books on emotional, healthy spirituality. My favorite one that he wrote was on the emotionally healthy church. And he says this in his book. He says this, we think that waiting is the parenthesis. It is not. And I would add to that, it is not only not the parenthesis, waiting is the point. It is the point to help us understand that we don't need to get our way. You see, what the resurrected Jesus helps remind us of during a season of waiting right after the resurrection, that, that getting back to normal is not the point. It wasn't the point for them, and it certainly isn't the point for us. Because what if God is trying to establish a new normal for us? Not in society. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds. What if, what if the resurrected Jesus helps us see things differently, that, that getting back to normal is not the point, getting what we want is not, not the point? What if God wants to share, wants us to share in something deeper for us? You see, what also is not the point is that not only that we don't get what we want, but we don't get what we want when we want it. What if God has a purpose that, that is far greater in his delayed answer? And so I can say he's worth the wait, and yet I know what's in my heart. I know it's in my heart, and I know it's in your heart, because we see it all throughout the scriptures, right? We can draw upon some warnings of the past. We can draw upon the warning of King Saul, who did not wait for Samuel to come to him when he was deliberating on whether or not to fight the Philistines. And instead of waiting for Samuel, he went in, he offered sacrifice, something the king was forbidden to do. And in so doing, the punishment therein was that he would lose the kingdom. But before all that, we see what happened when Aaron grew impatient, when the people of Israel grew impatient, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. And what happened in their impatience? What happened when they wondered what God was up to during the season of waiting that we're in, that they're in? You see, these doubts start to arise and we have this temptation to fashion for ourselves something that we can see. Something that gives us actually no comfort at all other than we can just see it. We can put our arms around it. But that actually is heinous in the sight of God. And so come with me back to the Exodus, to Exodus 32, when Aaron is up on the, or when Moses is on the mountain and Aaron is down with the camp and Moses is heading down and he hears the, the, the sounds of battle in the camp. And he rushes down to see what's going on. And what does he see but his own brother? fashioning a golden calf in the fire of everyone's gold that they had just taken from Egypt. And this is what the scriptures say in Exodus 32, verse 23 and 24. Aaron now speaking, For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Look, it has gone on too long. It's 40 days now. This is nearly six weeks we don't know what, what came of him. And so Moses, so now Aaron reporting to Moses. So I said to them, well, all right, let anybody who has gold take it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out, this, out came this calf. And I wonder if many of us 
kind of have this nonchalant attitude towards what God is forming in us, and instead we are now tempted to form and fashion something with our own hands instead of trusting for what God wants to form in our hearts. See, friends, let us not take matters into our own hands and therefore show our distrust in God's wisdom and his power. Look, he's resurrected from the dead, y'all. He could change this circumstance, but he chooses not to. So take heart, take courage. You are not alone. Noah waited over 100 years before it started raining. You guys know that? Sarah and Abraham waited 25 years for the promise of, of Isaac. We know they took matters into their own hands. Joseph was left in prison for 14 years. Moses waited 40 years in the desert before he went and charged the Exodus. And then another 40 years back in the desert with what he would call a stubborn and obstinate people. Jesus waited 30 years at least before he started his ministry by turning water into wine. You see, waiting, waiting for God to do something is a normal experience in the life of the Christian. And I have to ask myself, what is God up to in our waiting? May I encourage you to be encouraged with these words. God's order is always preparation before provision. If you um, need something to do during this time, Go plant a garden in your backyard or go plant like a, a, an orange tree or a lemon tree or, or a fruit tree of some sort. And what you will find is that the New Testament language of farming will come to life. Because in, in that exercise, what you'll understand is that you can plant a seed today, but it, it isn't going to yield the harvest tomorrow. It takes time. It take, you have to wait. See, the whole language of our spiritual formation of the entire New Testament is one of farming and agriculture. And yes, it made sense to those that, for, to whom he was speaking, but it shouldn't make sense to us now as well in new ways. And so may we rediscover that, 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 that truly preparation comes before provision. What is God preparing in us? You see, we read this passage as part of the assurance of pardon in Romans 5, uh, 1 and 2. And I want to pick up on that now in 3 in the sermon time. What is God preparing in us? What is God doing in us? Verse 3 of Romans 5 says this, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Who has been given to us. What is God doing in suffering? Why are we called to rejoice? Because God is producing in us character. Do we want character over comfort? Do we want Christ over convenience? Do we want th this thing that God is forming in our hearts over what we can fashion with our hands, church? You see, this leads me to our final point. May we live and may we hope for what is better than what we can establish for ourselves. May we hope for what is better. Look at what it says, and again, back in Luke 24, 49. Not just that, um, that there's a promise from our good Father coming to us, that we are to stay in the city, in verse 49, but until when? You see, until you are clothed with power from on 
high. What is better than fashioning these things for ourselves? What is better than comfort and convenience and authority and power? What is better? It's character, yes. But may I also just put it into one or two or three words. God wants to prepare in us during this time our personal holiness, our communal holiness. Someone asked me recently, hey, what do you think our church is going to be like when we come out of this? What do you think God's doing? What is he doing now? What is it going to produce for us into the future? And of course, we could think about like numbers. Like, I don't know if we're going to be 100 people, 50 people. I don't know if we're going to be 400. Who knows? But here's my prayer far beyond numbers. My prayer for us is that we would we would, through this time, become a people who, who learn how to disagree with one another without a call to arms. Like, because you can't go anywhere. You disagree right now. You can't, like, you're going to find another church right now? That's cool. You can't go find another neighborhood group right now. It's impossible. God is inviting us into something better through our disagreements. And you know what it is? Forgiveness. Forgiveness with one another. Mercy for one another. Grace towards one another, Right? There's something better than just getting what we want. Oh, you don't agree with that. You don't do that. That's fine. God is forming in us a personal measure of holiness. I pray that the cancel culture would get pushed out of any church and back into the world where it belongs. You know what cancel culture is. Oh, I don't like that. We should cancel that. That should never be allowed. That offended me, and so I want it out of my life and off of the network. You say something on social media, I unfollow you or unfriend you. That's cancel culture. And it belongs out in the world. It doesn't belong with the brotherhood and the sisterhood of God's family. You see, you can't do both. You can't be family and then still have this cancel culture in our heart. It's just impossible to do. I pray that we would be able to forgive one another quickly, that we would put our hope in the true risen Christ. That not, not this Jesus that we made up in our own mind, that we fashioned for ourselves, that he's just nice and he skips along with children all the time. I'm talking about the Jesus that roamed the earth, that's out of the grave and on the loose, right? That's the God that we, we want to worship. That's the God that I pray that we are putting our hope in. I pray that we would truly care about our neighbor's needs. So I don't know if you, about you, but I get tempted to like rally the troops and go serve and go do these things that you see on Facebook and on the news. And I kind of have to remember, man, I'm called to my neighbor. I'm called to love my neighbor well. I pray that we would awaken to their needs and that we would put ourselves out there to risk whatever safety, comfort, security that we have to love them well. I pray that we would continue to do that after this. I pray that we would care more about obeying Jesus by maturing in the power of the Spirit. I pray that God is forming for himself a church that neither bows down to comfort nor convenience, for both, both are overrated, and they suck the life out of a faithful Christian walk. Man, I pray that God plucks the two-by-fours out of our eyes as we look for the sawdust at our friend's eyes. I pray that during corona time that it would be a reminder that no, people aren't going to quarantine like you. No, people aren't going to go out and do normal things like you can do. But may we, in our judgment of other people for doing things that we disagree with, may that remind us and just implore us to ask the question, is my judgment of them the way that Jesus loves me? Or am I finding some sort of comfort in being self-righteous? See, 
The new command, the one that Jesus gave us, John 13, 34, on the final night of his earth, as, as I have loved you, so you should love one another. How then can God form in us during this time to wait, to patiently be discerning, to have this gift of self-awareness that the Holy Spirit can give us so that we can understand? Man, I'm finding a lot of comfort at just judging people. Oh, you wear a mask? Ha, ha, ha. Oh, you wearing gloves at the grocery store? Ha, ha, ha. Oh, you aren't? See, it's just now more obvious for us, and we have more time to think and sit and wonder, what is God doing? I pray that, that privilege is pruned from our souls, that we are not entitled to anything with God, that not, not health, not wealth, and not our favorite brand of cereal at H-E-B. I don't know about you, but I can't find chocolate Cheerios. They're out. And that, ain't my fa- that is not my, my favorite, just as an FYI, Okay. Some of us have picky kids, and it comes with privilege. I don't want this. I want that. And we approach the church, God's bride, Jesus' bride that way, and we approach God that way. May this time prune privilege out of us and instead cultivate hearts of faithfulness, cultivate hearts of rejoicing and suffering, cultivate hearts that long for Jesus in new and mighty ways. Charles Spurgeon um, said this in a sermon that he preached. He's known as the Prince of Preachers, probably the best preacher at least of the 19th century, maybe even longer. Um, and, and, and I had a friend of mine post this on Facebook, and I had to go back and look, look it up. But look at what it says, the fuller context of this. Charles Spurgeon says this, Be thankful for the providence which God has made you poor. <laughs> Oh, man, is that the Christian in Richmond, Texas, Sugarland, Rosenberg, Katie? Oh, man. Be thankful for the providence with which God has made you poor or sick or sad. And I want to hear you. Like, Chris, we were talking about this this morning. Charles Spurgeon was a man who battled deeply with depression. And he's saying, thank God for the providence which has made you poor or sick or sad. For by all this, Jesus works the life of your spirit and turns you to himself. The Lord's mercy, check this out. The Lord's mercy, this is what was posted, often rides to the door of our hearts on the black horse of affliction. Jesus uses the whole range of our experience to wean us from the earth and woo us to heaven. Christ is exalted to the throne of heaven and earth in order that by all the processes of his providence, every experience that we may have in rejoicing and in weeping, in much and in little, he may subdue hard hearts to the gracious softening of repentance. What's God up to during this? What is the better that we can hope for in all this? That God is forming something in our hearts far greater than what we can see or fashion with our hands. The life that is being formed in us is far greater than the one that we could fashion for ourselves. And what is that thing? It's holiness. It's to be set apart to live for Jesus and, in fact, to be made more like Jesus. So here's what I want us to do, picking up on this language in Luke 24, 49, that says, wait for the power that will be clothed from above. You will be clothed with that power from above. I just want to read three passages to end our time together so that we can have this beautiful picture that God wants to clothe us. 
He wants to provide for us. He wants to enrobe us with this righteousness that he's come to give us. And the first one is in Romans chapter 13. I'm just going to read these. I might give commentary to it, but I, want you to, I just want this to wash over you. Would the word of God just wash over us this morning? Romans 13, 12 to 14. The night is far gone. That's the spiritual night. The day is at hand. That's the spiritual day. The resurrection is at hand. God is renewing all things. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness. You see this? See what God is forming in us? That he's, he's calling us then to cast it off. And then what does he say? And then put on, clothe, be clothed, put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling or in jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Don't provide for the flesh any opportunity to gratify its desires. Romans 13, 12 through 14. The word of God would also say this through another letter. Uh, from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, 19 through 24. Those that um, don't know God, he says, those they have become callous. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, uh, to greedy practices, to every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. Don't let it be there anymore. Put it off. Take off those old grave clothes, which belongs to your former manner of life and its corrupt and deceitful desires. Hey, guys, some of our desires are deceitful, right? Our desires to get past this, our desires to move beyond God's pace for us, our desires for other people to do things like we want them to do. Some of them are deceitful for us, and they're deceiving us to thinking that that's the way to life. And in fact, it's not. It's laying down our rights, right? Just as Jesus did in Philippians 2, verse 23, it says in Ephesians 4, and to be renewed by the Spirit in your minds, and to put on, again, the language, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and in holiness. And then the final one that I just want us to wash it to wash over us is Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. Put on then. You see this language all throughout now. I'm, I'm just pointing it out to you in three different letters by Paul. There's this language that Jesus is talking about here in Luke 24 to be clothed with power on high. What does that power look like? To not live for ourselves. So Paul continues in Colossians 3:12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Oh man, we need compassion. We need kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Verse 14. And above all, but above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ, look at what this produces, the peace of Christ will then rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. And let the word of Christ 
dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And now verse 17, and whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What's God up to during all this? He is preparing our hearts. He is providing new clothes, and he is repurposing our desires. And he promised to do this in time, not instantly. He promises to give us the power to wait. He promises to give us the courage to repent. He promises to be present in us and with us so that we can rest in him and in him alone along the way. Would we take courage during this season to wait well? Would we take courage this season to worship Jesus in the wait? And would we trust him? Would we have the courage to trust him beyond the things that we can fashion with our own hands as we wait for the Moses to come down with power and instruction? And instead, would we trust him with our whole heart? Would you pray with me and we ask him to help us do these things? Lord, we love you. Lord, we need help. Just as your uh, disciples um, ultimately needed to wait for your power to come in the city, for your power to be made known by your spirit, for your uh, spirit to come on them and to make them witnesses, to be missionaries, to truly change the earth and change the world one person at a time. As they waited, Lord, I know they grew impatient because they're human. Lord, would you help us also not grow impatient? Would you help us uh, to go to the Lord, to ask him the hard questions that are in our hidden in our hearts? We wonder, Lord, what are you up to during this time? We wonder, Lord, where are you and how long, oh Lord? And we in our dissatisfaction, we start to blame government officials. We start to blame authorities in our lives. We start to push blame on this person and that person. And the reality is, it's just because we're not comfortable. It's because we want a life that's more convenient than it currently is. Lord, remove that heart of stone. And remind us that you've already given us a heart of flesh to be molded into you and the image of your son, Jesus. Or would you help us see that the kingdom that you're establishing on the earth isn't one with military might, but instead the molding of hearts. So would your kingdom come and your will be done in our hearts as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.